we're going to jump all over the Bible, so just get ready for that. Uh, maybe just write down references or something. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll hang out in a few, and I'll try to be uh, mindful of which ones maybe I really want you to turn to. But um, just so you know, this is a topical sermon, and so uh, usually what that looks like is uh, we're trying to cover a ton of information, and I just want to give you a few scripture references to kind of think through certain, uh, certain truths through. Um, here is the slideshow working. Oh man! I mean, there's so many jokes pointed directly at Macy. I, I don't know what I'll do if I don't have this slideshow working. Anyway, hey, what we have learned so far, we've we've talked about a lot of different uh, world religions and for, false forms of Christianity. Um, last week and in previous weeks. We've talked about Jehovah's Witnesses, we've talked about Mormons, and last week we talked about Christian science scientists, um, not creationists, but people that um, believe they've found the, the secret to healthy living found in the Bible, Christian science, you can listen to that. Um, but in, in, those three, in those three false forms of Christianity, I hope you caught the theme, especially last week, that oftentimes when you ignore history, you are doomed to repeat it. And that's what a lot of those false forms of Christianity have done. They've really not discovered the primitive form of Christianity, the early Christian church. That's not what they found, even though that's what they thought they were pursuing. What they've really found are just early heresies. So, for example, Mary Baker Eddy with Christian Science, what did she find? She just found um, a Christian heresy, um, a, a Gnostic Christian heresy that just ignored that. Uh, denies denies pain, denies suffering. Uh, same thing with Jehovah's Witnesses. They didn't go back to the early Christian church. They've just rediscovered uh, an early Christian heresy called Arianism, which is basically saying Christ is not God. He is the first created thing. Um, this morning, I want to kind of twist backwards a little bit, twist on you. Last week, we talked about the importance of knowing your church history, but, but this week, there's also a danger of maybe trusting and relying on uh, treating as authoritative Christian history. So I, I want you guys to be aware of history, be, um, be historically wise, but at the same time, we are not saying that we put history or church tradition on the same level as Scripture. We're, we're not saying you should interpret your Bible the way the church has always interpreted your Bible. At the same time, that may sound like I'm saying something different, but you'll see very quickly. For for one, and you'll you'll see this real quick, the church is scattered in its interpretation of the Bible. Uh, You can find one church father that says one thing and another that says another thing. So it's it's not necessarily um, the opposite is true. We're not saying we should look at church history as authoritative. Um, This morning, we're going to look at the Roman Catholic Church, and I'm going to argue that they are wrong, that they actually present a false form of Christianity. Instead of presenting a form of Christianity that sends people to heaven or gives people the vital truth necessary to to be right with God, Roman Catholicism actually does exactly the opposite. They present truths or what they suggest are truths that actually send people to hell and not heaven. They actually present a form of the gospel that 
would be considered by Paul to be another gospel, a different gospel, and therefore will lead people to being accursed, cursed by God, by the form of gospel that they pursue. So we're going to talk about that, but before we do, oh, did we lose the slideshow? Man, I was sure it was there. I'll just keep talking for a little bit more. What do, I, what do we want to talk about more? Uh, so just, just to cement here again, <laughs> just to reinforce, I love church creeds, I love church councils, but ultimately, I look to that creed and I say, do, does it have its authority from Scripture, or is it putting in authority over Scripture and saying, this is what Scripture teaches? I love creeds because they, they show me in succinct ways what the Bible teaches. And I, and I don't need a creed necessarily to see that in the Bible, but it helps me systematize and understand it simply. So... Um, I, this is what happens when Joey's not here. I hope you're listening, Joey. The world is lost without you, Joey. We don't know what to do. We're, we're lost. We're crumbling. It looks like it should work, right? It looks like it's working. There we go. All right. So first off, um, just so you know, Roman Catholicism for a while early on in American history was not very popular in the States. As a matter of fact, um, that, that was a big concern of uh, you know, early Early Americans, the, the founders of our country, they were kind of afraid of Roman Catholicism, so that's led to a lot of legislation. But lately, I would say, more and more, Roman Catholicism is now mainstream and becoming cooler and cooler. Matter of fact, everybody's a Roman Catholic. Matter of fact, if you want, if you want to be kind of a, a nominal Christian, Roman Catholicism, it seems like, attracts you. Uh, a lot of Hollywood stars are Roman Catholics because it feels like church. You're going to church and you're getting all these experiences of stuff. I cannot, I cannot filibuster any longer. I'm going to have to start reading. Mary had a little lamb pretty soon. Okay, there we go. There we go. Bam. So for example, guess what? Joe Biden, Joe Biden, there we go. We're good. We're good. Joe Biden is, Joe Biden is a Catholic or a nominal Catholic. At least you could find many articles that would suggest he's not a very good Catholic, but it doesn't matter anymore. You don't really have to be a very good Catholic to be a Catholic. Uh, Mark Wahlberg, for those of you that are blue blood fans, uh, or one of the one of the Wahlbergs. So maybe the other one. Maybe the other ones also. But anyway, he is also nominally a Roman Catholic. All of these are famous Roman Catholics, but they're not really that. Hey, good to see you, man. Uh, they're not really that uh, faithful, I would say, in their Roman Catholicism. Um, what else? Mel Gibson, obviously, he's a Roman Catholic. That's that's an easy one. That's an easy one to spot. Uh, who else? Who else? Uh, John Wayne was like not religious at all in his life, and then like the last day of his life he became a Roman Catholic, or so they say. So anyway, he's a Roman Catholic. Jimmy Fallon is Roman Catholic, although, once again, they always say this online, he keeps his religion very private, which to me is just nominal to me. Um, Who who else? Uh, Steve Carell, he's Roman Catholic, I think. Uh, I I know Scandal of Scandal uh, up there, your upper right-hand corner... uh, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien is Roman Catholic, believe it or not. Yes, um, oh, I know, crushing, crushing to your soul, but I still like him. Um, and, of course, crushing to Macy is uh, Tom Holland is also, I don't know, he grew up Roman Catholic and he's still 22 years old, so he's, he's, not he's 27, I don't know. So, I, once again, once again, 
You can find you can find anyone to be Roman Catholic. I was reading the other day that Katy Perry is Roman Catholic. But you grew you grew up in the Christian, and then like the world doesn't know the difference between Roman Catholic and Protestant. So sometimes like they're Christian, they must be Roman Catholic. So I don't know if all of these are true. These these, however, I'm pretty sure at some way would say that they were or are at one point a Roman Catholic. So so here you go. Like right, uh, there's a lot of popular people in our world today. Popular, loose term. John Wayne, you don't even know who he is, maybe. Uh, but popular people, <laughs> Joe Biden, <laughs> very popular. Um, but I'm going to argue that Roman Catholicism actually fails on what, guess what, guess what, are three pillars of fundamental Christian doctrine, right? Do you have a right view of Scripture? Do you have a right view of salvation? And do you have a right view of the Savior? This is how we should evaluate forms of Christianity. When someone, when some institution or movement says they are Christians, let's evaluate them based on what they believe about Scripture, what they believe about the Savior, and what they believe about salvation itself. You'll really get to the heart of the matter. And I would say Roman Catholicism fails, fails in every degree. We're going to look at it. Uh, first off, Roman, uh, you could, this is shorthand for the Roman Catholic Church, uh, RCC. That's how I write it whenever I'm writing about Roman Catholicism, RCC. The Roman Catholics are wrong. Maybe the tense there is wrong, actually. Roman Catholics are wrong about Scripture. I would first argue to you that they're wrong in their view of Scripture. Now, of course, Scripture is very important. Your view of Scripture is very important. Why? Because Scripture, we believe, is ultimately the Word of God, and it bears authority. It describes, it defines, it it is the basis of our view of doctrine, what we believe about God, what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about salvation. So if you're wrong on Scripture, you're going to be wrong on everything, right? We, we would say that, that Scripture, though, is the ultimate basis of all of our knowledge. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We cover this almost every week. All Scripture is God-breathed, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good word, uh, work. Uh, 2 Peter 1, also 2 Peter 1, 19, 20, and 21. We'll read t- verse 20. Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes by one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by the will of men, but men, being moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Notice, Scripture is not man's tradition. It's not a, an accumulation of man's thoughts about God. No, Scripture is God's word about himself and about man. It is our ultimate authority. And it's always good to say this as well. Scripture also not only claims that it's authoritative, but it also claims to be sufficient. In the first, uh, 2 Timothy 3, it says, it is what you need to be complete. That is what Scripture claims. It claims not only to be your authority, but what you need for life and godliness and righteousness. That's what you need. You need Scripture's authority. Scripture is sufficient. Matter of fact, Peter in 2 Peter 1, I think it's a very important passage because in 2 Peter 1 verse 19, Peter himself says Scripture is more significant than the highest experiences that he had even encountered. The the prophetic word is more significant than even tradition, which is very important in what we're talking about today. Peter himself says, I had an experience on the mountain. I saw 
Jesus revealed to me in all of his glory, and that is not as significant as the prophetic clear word. You don't need experiences. You don't need church tradition. You need the clear prophetic word, God speaking. You don't need man's experience in religion. You need God speaking. It says in in 2 Peter 1, verse 19, we have as a more sure word the prophetic word to which you would do well to pay attention. It is a, notice this, the description, it is a lamp shining in a dark place. That is where we are in our world. We are in a dark place theologically. We cannot in a sense, feel our way to God because of man and his fallenness. We need the word of God to illuminate, to be a lamp. What happens when you light a lamp? None of you know. But what happens when you flip a switch in a dark room? Suddenly you see everything as it is, and that is what God's word declares it to be. You don't just need man's experiences feeling your way towards God. You need God's word lighting up everything and showing you the way it is, and that's what God's word says. Matter of fact, I love James. James 1 talks about God's word as a mirror. God's word perfectly shows me who I am and my condition spiritually. But what does the Roman Catholic Church look to for authority? Now, be careful here because the Roman Catholic Church would say they believe in the authority of God's word. They uphold it. They say this is God's word. But they'd be very careful to qualify God's word. God's word is authoritative only in an as it is rightly interpreted by the Roman Catholic Church itself. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church claims the exclusive, listen to this, the exclusive authority to interpret Scripture and make doctrine. Uh, The Roman Catholic Church then places tradition, basically what the popes have said, what the bishops have said, as, uh, as as the equal footing of Scripture. So, hey, you you have to hear what the Pope says about that verse to rightly understand that verse. You have to hear what the Roman Catholic Church says about this verse or about this question because only the Roman Catholic Church, the, the, the heads of the church, understand the true meaning of Scripture. Uh, only the Roman Catholic Church, according to their own catechism, has the ability to rightly interpret Scripture because it is in trusted solely to the church. That's their words, entrusted solely to the church, the interpretation of the word of God. Here, I'll show it to you, I believe. Yeah, okay, so this is paragraph paragraph 82 of the Roman uh, Catholic Catechism. You can find this online very easily and see what they believe. Paragraph 82 says this, the church to whom the transmission and the interpretation of revelation was entrusted, notice, to the church, uh, does not derive her certainty about all revealed truth from the Holy Scripture alone. You got that? Okay. But both Scripture and tradition, once again, what they mean by tradition is what the Pope said and what the bishop said, um, as long as they're not in conflict with each other. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with, notice this, equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. They're putting them on the same level. Remember what happens when you put things on the same level? What always happens when you put things on the same level? This thing, tradition, is being used to interpret Scripture. That's always what happens, right? Oh yeah, You, you, you listen to them. You read their articles. What, what about this verse? What about this verse? Well, tradition tells us that that's what it 
means. That's what, what happens when they're equal like that. The, the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church is that the Pope is the head of the church. He is the vicar of Christ. He is the one who speaks for Christ. To be a vicar is a Latin term, which means... <laughs> Sorry, say it again. Vicar, you know what it means? I think it's a Latin term, right? Uh, talk? Talker? Talker, maybe. Okay. Speaker, substitute, kind of the same idea. Vicarious, that kind of, maybe, maybe it's not a Latin term, I don't know. But, but anyway, so talker, talker for Christ, maybe you could say that. Um, Marion Webster says it, kind of a substitutionary agent for Christ. When the Pope speaks, it is as if Christ speaks. Matter of fact, uh, Roman Catholic doctrine actually has this, this, this concept of him speaking from his chair. When the Pope speaks from his chair, it is equal with Christ himself speaking. It is as though Christ himself is on earth speaking from his chair. Matter of fact, I'll show you another uh, Roman uh, Catholic catechism paragraph, um, 2034. The Roman pontiff that's referring to the Pope and the bishops are authentic teachers, that is, teachers endowed with the authority of Christ who preach the faith to the people entrusted to them, uh, the faith to be believed and the faith to be put into practice the ordinary and universal magisterium of the Pope and the bishops in the communion with him teach the faithful the truth to believe and the charity to practice and the, be, and the beatitude to hope for. Notice who is the authoritative teachers of the word. It is the Pope and the bishops. Right, I'm, just, I'm just showing you this so you know I'm not just making it up, but this is actually what they teach. The, the, problem, is, the problem is, as you look back in Roman Catholic history, that you don't always see tradition agreeing with itself. There is there's clear uh, differences of thought, and it's and and it's not like slight things. There's this there's this moment uh, in church history where there were actually two popes at one point, and they actually well, one excommunicated the other, and the other excommunicated him. So who's true? Who's right? What which pope should we believe? And then not only that, if you get into medieval history, it is dark for a reason. It is the Dark Ages for a reason. It is a grisly, gory time. And the Roman Catholic Church, especially in the leadership, were just as corrupt as fallen man around them. So, so how can we say that the Pope speaks and interprets Scripture as Christ himself when we see such clear violations in Scripture? It is, it is, it is a very, I would say, a very weak argument to say that when the Pope speaks or when the Roman Catholic Church speaks, they're is Christ himself speaking. We have such tangible evidence of problems with that. Um, But not only this, and and this is crazy to me, but the Roman Catholic Church has also added to Scripture to support their own doctrine. They they have added, and it's, it's pretty... Pretty brazen, if you ask me, what their motives were for adding these things to to Holy Scripture. Uh, for example, it was in the Reformation period when they were fighting all these battles that the Roman Catholic Church suddenly discovered that the Apocrypha was inspired. Suddenly they're like, oh, this is also inspired literature and it should be added to the canon. By the way, what are the Apocrypha books? It's uh, Tobith, uh, Judith. Uh, additions to Esther, additions to Daniel, wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus. It's not a that's not Ecclesiastes. That's a that's a apocryphal book. Uh, Barak, the letter of 
uh, Jeremiah and First and Second Maccabees. Some of these have some helpful history, but a lot of them, a lot of them are just kind of weird and bizarre. Um, and notice also these apocryphal books, right? Uh, for for uh, 1,500 years or so, nobody thought they were inspired. But suddenly, now, when the Reformation happens, suddenly the Roman Catholic Church decides, and of course, whatever the Pope says goes, right? Uh, they decide that this is authoritative scripture, and so they add it to the canyon. Even though the Apocrypha is never referenced in either Old Testament or New Testament, the Apocrypha is never even mentioned by Jesus or the Apostles, and even though the early church fathers, who, according to the Roman Catholic Church themselves, are significant in their, in their views, at least they should be, even though the early church fathers hated, rejected these books outright, they still added them to the canon. Why? Why? Good question. Glad you asked. It's, I mean, I'm, it seems to me as though these books were added to the canon because they helped support doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church, namely prayers for the dead, uh, atonement by works, and the Immaculate conception of Mary. These books helped support Roman Catholic doctrine, so conveniently they were discovered to be inspired. And then, I mean, I'm sure the Roman Catholic Church would have its own view. Hey, we always thought so. We were just affirming them in this time. But the timing of it is very, very suspicious. Uh, what does the Roman Catholic Church itself teach, though? Um, and and why, why is it so significant to die kind of on this, kind of on this, this hill of word of God and authority. Well, let's, let's look now at what the Roman Catholic Church actually believes about salvation. Once again, I would say they are wrong in their view of salvation. Once again, Scripture clearly teaches that salvation is by grace through faith, apart from any good works of our own to merit our good standing with God. Uh, Nate Pickowitz, in his book, Why We Are Protestants, says the Reformation was all about answering the question, how can I be right with God? And the Reformers believed it was through grace, or by grace, through faith, through Christ alone. That's what they believed, and that's because that's what they saw in the Scriptures. For example, let's see, uh, Romans 4, you can write this one down, uh, 2 through 5 says this, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Um, to the one who works, his wages are counted according to grace. Uh, not uh, not counted according to grace, but according to what is due. But the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Or Romans eleven six says this, If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Grace implies that it's not by works that you are justified, made right before God. It's not by works. As a matter of fact, Galatians 2.16, this is a very significant verse to me. Look at what Paul says here in Galatians 2.16. He says, Knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh is justified. Dying of heat. Excuse me just a second here. Notice what he's saying there. He's saying essentially it is not by works that you are justified. It is by faith alone. And the context of Galatians is very helpful too, right? Because we had 
We had uh, um, a movement moving into the churches of Galatia that were arguing that you needed to add works to your salvation. Namely, you needed to be circumcised in order to be truly a Christian. And, and Paul just destroys that right there in Galatians 2.16, right? It's not by works of the law that you are justified. Or you could go to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. This is very helpful. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no man may boast. Very clear, grace means not of works. You are saved by faith, by grace, not of works, so that no man can boast. But what does the Roman Catholic Church believe about salvation? They teach that you are saved, get this, because they're, they're trying to also say they believe the Bible. They're, they say that you are saved by grace through works. Right? It is the grace of God that gives you good works in order to earn your salvation, merit your salvation. That's what they say. Now, now to be clear, they, they, wouldn't say, they wouldn't say that we teach people that you are saved by your own works. They, they would say, no, you're not saved by your own works. We, we've read Galatians 2. So, so we... Don't believe that either, but they would say that you are saved, get this, by being infused with God's grace to such a point that you slowly, progressively, through grace, become more and more justified. That's what the Roman Catholic Church would say. You slowly get more and more justified. You're not justified by faith, you're justified by works. I'm going to, I think... Yeah, here we go. Here's a website, uh, Catholic Answers. It is a apologetic Catholic website. Um, it says this. Notice what he says about works um, and grace. Even though only God's grace enables us to love others, these acts of love please him, and he promises to reward them with eternal life. Thus, good works are meritorious. That means earning you something. Uh, when we first come to God in faith, we have nothing in our hands to offer him. Sounds kind of good. Then he gives us grace to obey his commandments in love, and he rewards us with salvation when we offer these acts of love back to him. We do not earn our salvation through good works, but our faith in Christ puts us in a special grace-filled relationship with God so that our obedience and love combined with our faith will be rewarded with eternal life. Now notice, it sounds... Biblical, but notice the key difference between what, what I would say is the truth and what they're saying. They say grace gives you the ability to earn your salvation, but it's not just your works. It's God's grace, totally. It's totally God's grace, but still, you're still earning God's favor to you through grace coming into your life. And, and grace must come into your life through all sorts of means, through the sacraments, through seven sacraments. Although you can't do all the sacraments because one of them is to get married and one of them is to be a priest. So you can only actually fulfill six sacraments if you're one person. But still, you, got, you pursue grace through all sorts of sacraments. Now there's this council, Council of Trent. Um, this is a church council in 1545 and 1563, and it produced all these canons, which is kind of like church law, and it said this about justification by faith. 
alone, particularly the kind of justification that the reformers were talking about. And, and I'll tell you the significance of the timing of this council in a little bit, but let me just read to you what they write. And, and you'll notice really quick here, notice the language, they say anathema all the time. And what does anathema mean? It means you are cursed. It means you are to be excommunicated. You are under God's judgment. If you believe the following things are true. This is what the Roman Catholic Church believes, and, and this has been since the 1500s, and they still believe this because the Roman Catholic Church has never denied the Council of Trent. This is what the Council of Trent says. Uh, Trent Canon 9, if anyone says that by faith alone the impious is justified, let him be anathema. Or here's one I'll just show you. Uh, wait. Nope. Let's go back. I, don't, I guess I don't have that one. Uh, Canon 30, if anyone saith that after the grace of justification has been received to every penitent sinner, the guilt is remitted and the debt of eternal punishment is blotted out in such wise that there remains not any debt of temporal punishment to be discharged either in this world or in the next in purgatory before the entrance to the kingdom of heaven can be opened to him, let him be anathema. So essentially what they're saying is, if anyone believes that you can, in one instance, through the cross, remove all of your eternal judgment, cursed. You are cursed. You are excommunicated from the church. Uh, Why does the Roman church stand so fiercely against justification by faith alone? Let me give you a little bit of a historical lesson. Uh... Roman Catholicism, according to Roman Catholicism, uh, justification is not a completed act. It's not a declared act. I'll I'll, I'll define this in a minute. Uh, What we believe, though, is that uh, when the Bible speaks of justification, uh, we, we, we see that as, as legal language, and it was used that way in the background and the languages and Greek and things like that. But the Roman Catholic Church does not believe that it is a completed, uh, forensic, justif- justifying, dec- declaring act, but it's rather a progressive experience that the worshiper continually cleanses themselves through. Uh, but it all, all goes back to, for them at least, tradition and the church's historical understanding of justification. And, and here we go. Here we go into some languages. But okay, so the early, so the Roman Catholic Church. What kind of Bible were they reading? They were reading a Bible called the Latin Vulgate, which was a, a Latin translation of the Old Testament and the Greek translation of the New Testament. And the Vulgate translated the word justification with the Latin word. You know it? No, okay. You know what I'm talking about. Just, just in case. Yustificari, you know that word? I don't know. Do you know that word? Every time I say Latin, I just want to make sure you guys understand what I'm saying, because otherwise you'll correct me later. Yustificari, uh, uh, which is a, a compound Latin word between eustium, uh, I don't know how to speak Latin, uh, just or righteous, and ficari, which means to make. And notice, what is the Latin word saying? Every time the word justification happens in the New Testament, it's saying God makes someone righteous. They're made righteous according to that. God enters into a process of sanctifying, making them righteous over time through their good works. Or this is what the Roman uh, Catholic Catechism says, justification is conferred in baptism, the sacrament of faith. It conforms us to the righteousness of God who makes us inwardly just by 
the power of his mercy. That's what they see when they see justification in the Bible. Or they say this, justification establishes cooperation between God's grace and man's freedom. On man's part, it it is expressed by the ascent of faith to the word of God, right? That is what justification is doing. It is ascending you to understand what God's word is talking about. But it's really, notice the language, it's cooperation between man and God. It's, it's you progressively, slowly becoming more and more righteous. That is what justification means, according to the Latin Vulgate. You are being made righteous. It's pretty significant. It's pretty serious, because that helps their doctrine right along. But by the way, that definition of justification to be made righteous, sounds a lot like what actual sanctification is. If you're saying, that sounds right, God gives us grace to obey and walk in him, that's what sanctification is, but that comes after justification. You'll see that in the Bible. And bottom line is, I would say the Roman Catholic doctrine of justification is just their understanding of how the treasury of merit works, right? There's all this merit in heaven from all of these long-gone saints And we get some of this merit given to us in piecemeal as we avail ourselves of the Roman Catholic Church and sanctification. We slowly get more and more and more righteous. But once again, remember the anathema, no one is completely righteous. I mean, the Pope could, but he won't. Nobody is completely righteous. At one point, you have to slowly work your way towards righteousness. And if you don't make it all the way, don't worry. There's this helpful little doctrine called purgatory. And you can spend a couple hundred years in purgatory cleaning yourself up before you're ready to go into God's presence. Because nobody can declare that they're completely righteous before God. That would that, that sounds that sound wrong, that, according to the Roman Catholic view of things, at least. But this is why I would say to you, the the... The, the idea behind the Reformation was so significant. Some people say, you know, in the Reformation, uh, Reformation, Luther discovers the gospel. But really, more accurately, how you should think about it is, in the Reformation, Luther rediscovers the gospel. He rediscovers what the Bible is truly saying, what the Bible is actually expressing to us. And, and once again, this goes back to the Greek word justification. In Greek, the, the Greek word means something a little bit different. Listen to this. Remember, a Latin word says make righteous. We are made righteous. What does the Greek word say? We are declared righteous. Does that sound different to you? Made righteous versus declared righteous? That is actually what the Greek word is talking about. And, and here, notice this. Uh, let's go to Romans uh, 3.21. Uh, but now, apart from the law of righteousness, uh, the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God. Wow, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all those who believe there is no distinction. In the gospel, you get the righteousness of God. But what happens? Romans 5.1 says this, we have been justified by faith and therefore we have peace with God. How can you have peace with God if you're only progressively, intermittently, by piecemeal, made righteous? No, because we are declared righteous in Christ Jesus, we have total peace with God. That's Romans 5.1. Or let's go over to Ephesians 2 verse 8 again. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no man can boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Notice the difference there. 
we are, we are justified not by works, but for works. That's what Ephesians 2 is talking about. We are justified by faith without works, but when the person that is justified is justified, they are declared righteous, and instantly their life results in good works. There's, there's a difference there. But all from how you understand justification. Am I declared righteous before God, and according to Romans 5.1, enjoying peace with God? Or am I made righteous slowly but surely, and therefore hoping, hoping, hoping that I will eventually one day enjoy God's presence? I would say to you, the glory of the gospel, the glory of the gospel is in this. The glory of the gospel is that God justifies the ungodly. He doesn't, he doesn't, he, he doesn't justify you, declare you ultimately righteous when you finally made it, but he declares you righteous when you're ungodly, when you're a sinner, when you're the worst you can be. That is the glory of the gospel, for sure. Let's uh, turn to one. Oh, wait, I got to say something else here. Is there something? You had a question? Okay, all right, good. Let's, uh, where am I? Where am I? Okay, just wondering, just wondering. All right. Um, and by the way, you know that the Roman church, you know that the Roman church believes that you are justified by works because of how the Roman Catholic Church responded to the Reformation. Now, if, if they were just kind of working their way through the muck and, the, and the, the dirt and the filth of the medieval period, when somebody comes along and says, hey, this is what the Bible actually means, you'd think they would jump on it, but how do they respond to the Reformers? They double down on their doctrine. They double down. Remember the Council of Trent? The Council of Trent was a... Uh, a significant council because it happened in response to the Reformation. The Reformation started in about 1517. That's when Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the, the door of the church. And the Council of Trent happened in 1545 and in 1563. And it was an actual response to Luther and to the Reformers. They were saying, we know what you believe and we reject it. That's what they were saying. They were saying, we understand what you think the Bible says, and we categorically reject it, and we choose to believe something else. And a matter of fact, we say anybody who believes what you believe is accursed under God's judgment. By the way, at the same council, the Apocrypha was declared to be canon. At the same council, the Roman Catholic Church rejected any notion of authority on Scripture alone, as we've already talked about, but with Scripture and tradition. And by the way, it was at this council that the Roman Catholic Church prohibited anybody from having any other copy of the Bible but the Latin Vulgate. Suspicious, right? But it was at this council that they once again made these canons, which are very striking in how they, they, they intentionally say what the Reformers believe about justification is wrong and will bring you to judgment in God. They say in Canon 12, for example, if anyone saith that justifying faith is nothing else but confidence in the divine mercy which remits sins for Christ's sake, or that this confidence alone is that whereby we are justified, let him be anathema, let him be cursed. They are directly responding to the Roman Catholic Church and saying, we do not believe that. So what, what do we conclude about that? They are wrong on their view of salvation. They reject what the Bible says in its original languages. They choose tradition over Scripture, and they believe that instead. The Roman Catholic Church is wrong on their view of Scripture, but they're also wrong on their view of salvation as a result. See how that works? 
They deny the gospel. I'll, I'll read one more canon here, number 24. If anyone says, I just, I love this because of how it actually reveals the glory of the gospel to us, by the way. If anyone says that the justice or justification received is not preserved and also not increased before God through good works, but that those works are merely the fruits and the signs of justification obtained, I believe that, uh, but not the cause of the increase, let him be accursed. If anyone says that your justification does not increase or grow, they are accursed. I love the fact that before God in Christ Jesus, because of his righteousness, not mine, I have no spiritual potential. I'm not going to increase in righteousness by a bit, by even a tiny bit. I am as righteous in Christ today as I will be for all eternity. That is a glorious truth. I, I am as righteous before God in Christ today as I will be forever and ever. Now, you will see progress in my life. You will see aspirations in my life. You will see me earnestly struggling against sin and seeking to put on more Christ-likeness. But in Christ Jesus, I am as righteous as I'll ever be. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that wonderful? Doesn't that result in Romans 5.1 peace? Yes. I don't work for my salvation. I work from my salvation because I am gloriously in fellowship with God and now I labor with all of the earnestness that that joy puts in me. Let's, let's think about one more thing. There's Ephesians, by the way. Uh, there's the Council of... I, I lost where my slideshow was. Uh, here's the Council of Trent. I'm sure it looked just like that. Um, so there's that. Um, the Roman Catholic Church is wrong about their view of the Savior. Two points. They're wrong about their view of the Savior. How do we know this? Because they diminish the work, the work of Christ on the cross. How do they diminish the work of Christ on the cross. They hold that the Holy Sacrament of Mass is repeated, and it is an unbloody sacrifice of Christ that makes propitiation for sin. But you have to have this repeated in your life again and again and again because you keep sinning and you need Christ to die again and again and again to cover your sins. It's not once for all. That's not what they view the cross to be about. This is one of their uh, theologians, I believe, Josh Hardin. He's a Catholic theologian. He says, The sacrifice of the altar is not mere empty commemoration of the passion and death of Jesus Christ, which is what we would believe here, Um, but a true and proper act of sacrifice. Christ, the eternal high priest, in an unbloody way, offers himself a most acceptable victim to the eternal Father as he did upon the cross in the Mass, no less then on Calvary, Jesus really offers his life to his heavenly Father. The Mass, therefore, no less than the cross, is expiatory for sins. Christ is continually offering himself to pay the penalty for your sin. Now, that may, in one sense, seem cool, but do you realize what that does? It's saying what Christ did on the cross, in his body, suffering, was not really sufficient. It was not full. He he did not pay the penalty for all of your sins, just a little bit of it. And and that needs to be repeated by Christ, actually, continually. And, and, And notice, Christ is just, the Mass is just one of the graces. 
You do not come to God just by the cross of Christ alone. You come through all sorts of graces from God. Christ's ability to give you grace is just one of multiple channels. And here's the, the second reason why the Roman Catholic Church is wrong in their view of the Savior. He is not the only channel of receiving grace from God. Matter of fact, there's another person who is equal, pretty much, in their ability to give you grace. Who is that? How do they, how do they diminish Christ? Secondly, they diminish Christ not only by their view of his repeated sacrifice, but they also diminish Christ based on their view of Mary. They put her in equal position. Now, of course, they wouldn't say they're making her into a god, but that's really what they're doing. Just like they wouldn't say they're putting tradition over the Bible, that's really what they're doing. And also, just like they say, it's not your own works that you're justified by, but that's essentially what they're doing. But the very terms they use to refer to Mary betray the, the high and lofty position they put her in and the, the devaluing and the diminishing of Christ as well. They refer to Mary as the queen of the universe. They refer to Mary as my sovereign. They refer to Mary as the hope of Christians. They even refer to Mary as more merciful than Jesus. They even speak of her as Jesus' co-redeemer. And, and here's, the, here's the idea, right? If, if Jesus is going to give mercy to anyone, he's going to give mercy to the people that Mary tells him to because she's his mom, and, and he'll listen to her. Therefore, I'm going to pray to Mary because she's infinitely merciful and kind and compassionate, according to the Roman Catholic Church. And if I can pray to Mary, then Mary will pray to Jesus, and Jesus will give me grace. Therefore, she's a co-redeemer. Therefore, she is even said more merciful than Jesus. There's this view of Jesus that Jesus is kind of stern and distant and removed, but Mary is gracious and sympathetic and compassionate. And you're like, Mary, she's just a human. But they actually view uh, Mary to have sinlessness in her conception. She is sinless in life. She was, she was brought up into heaven in sinlessness as well. She is better. She is someone that you would prefer to make intercession than you, even more than Jesus. That's their view of Mary. She is... She is, she is more sympathetic. We were, talking about, we were talking about Jesus and praying to Jesus in the song. That song, if it was Roman Catholic, would basically be saying all those things but to Mary. Mary will listen to me. Mary will sympathize with me. Mary will be moved towards me. Jesus is far and Jesus is removed, but Mary is merciful and gracious and abounding in love. This is uh, Roman Catholic uh, Leo the... 13th, he says this about Mary. Thus, no man goes to the Father but by the Son, so no man goeth to Christ but by his mother. They've diminished Christ based on their understanding of what he has done and their elevation of Mary as well. Do you notice this? Roman Catholics fail in their view of Scripture, their view of salvation, and their view of the Savior. It's a false form of Christianity. It's not a true form of Christianity. It rejects the very, the very fabric of the Christian faith. Acts 4.12 says this, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. But that name is only given to us through Scripture. That name is only given to us as Christ through Scripture, and only in Christ is there hope of salvation. That's glorious. That's glorious gospel truth that we see in comparison 
But that is devastating as well because the Roman Catholic Church dominates the world. And then they might say they're not worshiping images. But you go to any South America country and you see idol worship in extreme forms in Roman Catholic churches. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We've been able to share and talk about Roman Catholicism. I pray this would be helpful and increase these students' knowledge of you and of your word and cause them to rejoice even more in the gospel and to be able to defend it even firmer. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.